Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by hearing the lessons learned and the stories of current industry leaders. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. And today we're speaking with Danielle Timms. She's the Chief Data and Analytics Officer for Free Range Creatives, which is our marketing and advertising company based in Cape Town in South Africa. Danielle is originally from Germany, but she has been working in South Africa for a few years and she tells us about her journey. In the past, she was national head of data planning and analytics at Ogilvy and Mather. And before her current role at Free Range Creatives, she was consulting Chief Analytics Officer at Ogilvy and Mather, South Africa. I hope that you enjoy this episode. I hope that you're enjoying the podcast in general. If you do, can you please share it with one friend, tell one person about the podcast. It would mean the world to us to continue to get the word out. Thank you so much and enjoy today's episode with Daniel Timms. Hi, this is Felipe and today I'm speaking with Daniel. How are you doing? Hi, I'm well. And you? Very well. Thank you so much for making the time. So excited to be speaking with you and uh, to get to ask you about yourself and your challenges and your professional career. Thanks so much. Mm, it's a pleasure. So at the beginning, I wanted to ask you about how did you get started in the data space? What was it that brought you in and how did you find it? Okay, so I didn't start in data. I actually wanted to be a medical doctor, and then that didn't work out for a whole bunch of reasons, which we can talk about another time over a glass of wine. And I ended up studying or getting a master's in economic psychology, which really is a fancy word for marketing. And I worked in this space for quite a few years, and my focus was on the digital side of marketing. So digital and CRM, which, because this was such a long time ago, had actually just only started. We're talking about the really early 90s, 91, when I had my first job. And because my focus was on digital and CRM, it meant that working with data for me from day one became actually quite important. But only later on, and really much later on, I decided to switch and focus a lot more on data. And this was only probably about six years ago. So after being a strategist and having moved on to a creative agency in a strategic role and heading up digital strategy, I came up with the idea and I said to my, at the time at Ogilvy, that I felt that we should really have a data division. And he said, that's such a great idea. I don't know why we don't have one. So please make a plan and go ahead. And that's how it all started. That's fantastic. So I'm curious to ask you essentially about digital marketing and strategy. But mm. first, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your career so far? Yeah, so my career really started as a marketing person. And my first job was slightly different in the sense that I worked for a big NGO and the link to the National Postcode Lottery in Holland, because that's where I was born. And I was so lucky to be traveling all over the world, shooting mini documentaries for television. So that was a big part of my role. And then at the same time, it was just also looking after the marketing, starting the websites, newsletters, 
direct marketing, CRM, all those kind of pieces. That was my first, first job, and it was really an amazing one. And after that, I moved into a more sort of traditional marketing role on client side, working for various corporates. And then I moved to South Africa, where I had my first job as a strategist on the agency side of things. And I worked, my biggest client at the time, so it was also interesting, was um, British American Tobacco, which was quite a decision for me to have to make after having also worked for quite a few NGOs and still being doing a lot of pro bono work also in on the NGO side of things. But I must say, from a marketing point of view, it was a really interesting field. And I also... Because there were so many limitations with regards to marketing tobacco. It mm. meant we had to be really creative. And we were also using data quite cleverly, although at the time yes. it was very clever. <laughs> and now I think it's evolved so much. But because we had to be really clever, we had to use all the data that we could lay our hands on. So that's, and then from there on, I moved more and more into a, I guess, into a strategist that was always working with data to inform a strategy, to be able to develop sonas, to develop a plan, to test messaging, A-B testing, all those things that at the time were really new and now so, so incredibly normal. And then there was a point in my career when I decided, actually, I find all of this really interesting. It should be part of how we work at the agency. Let's see if we can formalize it. And then I got a whole bunch of people excited also at Ogilvy in South Africa. And then off I went as the first national head of data and analytics at Ogilvy in South Africa, which was an amazing role. Yeah, that would have been amazing. My journey. Amazing. So let me ask you a bit more about your early days doing, uh, doing mm. direct marketing, CRM. What do you remember about those days? What were the couple of challenges that you're working on? Sure, that's just quite a long time ago. What I do remember is that this was a time when building a website, for example, was so exciting. Like it was probably when I was working for my, in my first role, this was the time when I think email was introduced also into the workplace. It's very difficult to imagine that this was not even that long ago. Like it feels like we've had email and the internet forever, but it was really only starting to be developed roundabout and, and being democratized and everyone was using it in those really early 90s. So I do remember building the first website and it being the biggest project ever, an insane budget. I mean, at the time, all these kind of things that have changed so much and getting people to understand how we should be using a website, how we develop content. I don't even think that at the time we had any analytics on the site. I mean, I'm not even sure if we knew that that was even possible. Yes. So it's funny when you look back, you look at those moments and you think that life was actually quite different then and it's evolved so much. So much. It's true. Were you running experiments like how you're mentioning that you did later on in your career, like A-B testing and experiments to see what type of messaging worked? Were you doing those then? 
Not at the time at all. I mean, I think the only when we did it is we would do it in direct marketing because we were still using yes. traditional DM as pieces that we would post to people. And there we would do A-B testing. That's also so funny to imagine now that you would be using A-B testing in print. But we didn't have newsletters, email newsletters then, for example. And DM yes. at the time was very effective. So it's a really old-fashioned way of marketing that's changed and evolved so much. But we were using similar techniques in a different kind of space. That's right. And that's I wanted to ask you about that. What do you think about the evolution of marketing and having this strong introduction or input from data really sort of penetrating the field all over? What do you think about that? And what are the, the changes that you've seen as a result? Well, I'm very excited about it. I mean, I've always been really excited about it. I was one of those people. I remember when I moved to Ogilvy in my first role. So I was also a new type of strategist, someone who would be looking at data. But I was at the time, I would say the only person probably in the building who was thinking that kind of way. And I went through a phase in my career where I went, where I actually felt almost insecure about it because it was not the common thing to be doing. But I always wondered, like, if we have data, why would we be coming up with insights after speaking to a focus group of five people? I mean, can't we just look at the data and see how 20,000 people, to me, that made a lot more sense. At the time, in that role, people weren't ready for that and didn't understand it, and they probably felt very intimidated by all this knowledge, I think. And because uh -huh. of that, a lot of times they actually made me feel bad almost. It was almost seen as a weakness to be using data instead of gut instincts. I remember the moment when all of that changed and it suddenly discovered that I was not a crazy person who was just thinking so differently from everyone else, that there are actually so many people out there who have gone possibly through a similar process. Yeah, and who are now slowly taking over the world, which has been a major discovery. That's right. Very and exciting. what was that moment? What was that moment that you described? Well, that moment was, I mean, my first year as a more data-driven strategist in a creative agency, big creative agency environment, was a really tough year. And that year, I almost decided that maybe I needed to consider finding another career or another company. And then I was asked to come and present at a conference, and it was a conference for financial people and data people. And so I said, well, I'd love to come and present. I put together, they asked me to present something around digital marketing and data and how you should be using digital marketing, uh, some case studies. And they wanted me to put together a PowerPoint presentation. So I said, well, I normally present actually very it's interesting because whilst I am like a data person, I present very visually because I find that people respond better to visuals and not necessarily to numbers. I'll talk about the numbers, but the way I do it is very different. And they said, oh, that would be amazing because we have so many people who've got like death by PowerPoint presentations already. So a different one would actually be quite lovely. And we're looking forward to seeing you at the conference. And then when I was at the conference, 
people loved the presentation, just a different style, a different, it felt like it was completely different to everyone else. And they were all lapped it all up. And I felt like I was almost the hero at the conference. And it was a moment where I felt, I almost felt, I know it sounds very silly when I say it, but I felt, what's the story about the little duckling that turned out to be a swan? Yes. is almost what it felt like to me at that point where I realized, oh my word, there are so many people who've got actually very similar ideas, who are working with data in a way that's possibly a lot more sophisticated than I have been doing, and it's so exciting. And they are very open to different ways of thinking, presenting, and communicating. So that was a turning point in my career, I can say. And that's not even that long ago. That's only probably five years ago. That's fantastic, though. That's fantastic because you had this way of thinking that you carried with you your entire career. And then this moment was almost when the market was ready for that Mm. type of thinking. So that's fantastic. All the people throughout those last phases of my career I am still working with today, and it feels like I had to go through all those different ups and downs, amazing projects, projects that didn't work so well, clients that didn't understand it, people that didn't understand it, people that did. And I had to go through all of that to get to why I am today now, which is a completely happy space, but wouldn't have been able to get here today without having experienced all of that. It is so true, hey, like how the failures and the downs and the the tough times teach you so much that then helps you be better in your career. I've definitely had a lot of those. (laughs) In your case, do you have a favorite failure or something that was an apparent failure at the time that then allowed you to be better later on? I have so many. But one of my favorite ones, I actually have a few. So one is around how to communicate anything data-related to non-data people. That's been probably my biggest learning curve. Yeah. So initially, I remember that I was pulled into meetings. It was mostly different agencies that were reporting back on results on a monthly basis. Those were like the longest presentations, like three hours of looking at numbers on spreadsheets and PowerPoints. And I was always sitting in those meetings wondering, okay, well, it's a lot of numbers. Are those are those good numbers? Are those bad numbers? What are we going to do about those numbers? Does anyone have any ideas? And initially, I would just sit and be quite quiet because everyone else seemed to be perfectly happy to be talking and talking and talking and going in circles and not really, in my view, getting anywhere or discussing the interesting bits. But I do remember the first time that I that I did start to talk about it and challenge people, it was very clear that people didn't like it. And maybe it was also because I think that looking back is that half the time they actually didn't even understand the numbers themselves. So let alone the why this was happening. I mean, I'm, I've always been, even as a young child, one of those kids that would just keep on asking why, why, and figuring out why something is happening. Could it be better? Could it be different? What can we do? Do we need to change? And whilst some people, particularly in the data space, are very keen to be exploring those kind of questions and coming up with answers, not everyone else is. So it was only when, and it's also actually quite sad, but when I suddenly had a big title that it turned out 
that people were listening to my comments more than before when I was the same person with the same questions, but not necessarily the big title. And then also just a whole changed world and universe where data suddenly became important, which meant that people had to listen. That was an interesting phase. Then also just doing projects with clients that didn't understand data and then being so excited about the process that we went through and wanting to share that, you know, everything that we had done and how we had done it and all the results and in depth, but then realizing very quickly that most people are not interested in that. They are really just interested in the what it means, the so what, the what can we do. And that's when I learned that nine out of 10 times, the best thing to do is to package that and really nicely and all the hard work to go into an appendix. And then hopefully you'll find one or two people who will want to know more and that you can have a separate session with and talk about it in depth. And But most people just actually don't care. That is so true. That's a way to make change with the data to get to find what people are interested in. So I wanted to ask you more about your process of how do you communicate the results of data? How do you package together mm. the so what that could be important for people? What's your process or yeah. the way that you do that? These days I present that very succinctly and usually quite visually because I find it's the only way that people will be able to relate to it or understand it. And then there can be a version that's more in-depth and more numbers and the process. And I think it's different now because we do also have clients that are interested and are actually similar-minded people and they want to know all the detail. But when you work for a big agency, most clients of that agency are just not those kind of people. And it's also quite a tough process where you need to realize that whilst you love everything that you do with the team that has worked so hard, that sometimes the best thing you can do is package it in a 20 minutes presentation to share only the key points from six months of work. That is so true, because that's when you have the highest impact, just showing people, you know, essentially punchline after punchline after punchline, all actionable things. And then, yeah, hiding the complexity, putting it in yeah. the appendix, as you were saying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hard. Like, so initially I didn't do that because you're just so proud of the cleverness and just and the detail and you want to share it all. But yeah, so it's very important to understand your audience. I think that's a big learning. Yes, definitely. And you yes. mentioned a couple of times that your, your presentation style is very visual. Tell us a little bit more about how you do that or if you can describe it a bit more, please. Yeah, literally a lot of times it's an image. It really is showing images instead of that will tell the story that I'm trying to tell or sort of visualize it to the best way. And then instead of it just being a normal PowerPoint or it being something that requires a lot of reading or where you don't really need to listen to what the presenter is saying. So more like, a, I'm going to call it the TED Talk style presentation. I mean, those really are always the, the kind of presentations that people love anyway. So it's a more inspirational version. Usually I find if we've been using data to unpack a particular audience, for example, or a persona, then the best thing, what you can do is make that person come to life through visuals. So then I find that, for example, a mood board is a better thing to do than to putting together a slide with stats around that particular audience. 
So that can go in the appendix again. The brain works better with visuals for most people. Yes, definitely. So it sounds like you construct a story with the data. Mm. How do you create that story? How do you target that properly to the audience? Well, usually there is a specific job or a specific... So there are questions that we are trying to answer. And that's always what I also tell people when we are briefed, is that we can pretty much answer any question. We just need to figure out what the questions are, and then we can help answer those. And once we've got the answers, we can find the right story to be visually and compellingly tell that particular story. And then all the factual, interesting pieces that people need to know, but they can go in the appendix again. There's usually multiple versions of presentations depending on the audience that you're speaking to. I mean, sometimes it's a meeting with a CEO and a a chief marketing officer. That's a very different presentation to presenting results of a specific project that you're presenting to an analyst or a person who on the client that you're doing that for now needs to use that story to try and put it in marketing collateral. So then we figure out, okay, so what are the kind of words and the visuals that they can use to be telling that story? Those are all very different presentations potentially for the same project because all these people will be looking at it differently. And I guess that's where my strategy role comes in handy because, well, that's where you learn to think about your audience. If you can't think about the audience, you would never be able to come up with a good strategy. Exactly right. So what type of things do executives in the C-suite look for or want to know in the presentations? Or how do you structure the presentations differently for them than Mm. um, for other audiences? Well, it depends because, I mean, sometimes it could be that the suite would be mostly interested in how they can use that to make money, which is a whole different presentation altogether. I mean, most of the times they are looking at it from a business point of view. So it's almost, I think, what I have also learned over the past couple of years is that I am really good with the right team in um, translating translating data into a story for a specific group of people. And that translation of data, is that's an interesting piece because it's what will pull everyone together. So I have learned that I can speak easily speak to an IT person, but also to a data scientist and also to a marketing person because I understand what they're all looking for. So a marketing person would be looking at pieces of information that they can use to successfully market a product or a service to a group of people, how to be telling that specific story. An IT person, you know, uses completely different kind of language. I find that nine out of 10 times a marketing person and the IT person don't like each other, don't understand each other, and they can't work together. So you need someone who's able to translate one story to another and that I think is also a job. They, I don't know if there is a title for that kind of role but I think that is becoming actually more important than probably 10 years ago. Completely agree, completely yeah. agree. Yeah, be that translation, that bridge between yeah. different silos or different worlds is so important. How do you think people can get better at that or build that skill? That's a really good question. I don't know what you can do. 
I have met a few people that are able to do the same. And I don't know if it's because it's a specific type of brain that has a right part that works well and a left part of the brain also. And because of that, that brain can communicate different things to different people, the same thing, but differently to different people. I think what it also requires, it requires experience. So I don't think that you would be able to do that at the beginning of your career or maybe on a project level, but not potentially on a bigger level because you might need a certain level of experience and authority to even be invited to be part of certain conversations. But then also you would need to have in-depth experience in a lot of different areas to be able to have those conversations. So it might also just be something that comes with time. And I think people would probably know whether they are the kind of person that is pulled into meetings when people are struggling to understand each other, you yes. would probably know if you're that kind of person. That if, you, if you find that you are that kind of person, that's a really good thing. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And tell me, what is it? I want to ask you essentially almost like to tell us a little bit more, uh, like a definition of your role. What does it mean to be a strategist mm. that uses data in a creative agency? It means a lot of things. So in the creative agency space, you can use data for many different ways. So we developed a data use framework at Ogilvy, and it was looking at how can you use data to unlock or to understand an opportunity for a brand. And that usually means plowing through years and years of sales data versus competitor data to try and see if you can pick up any kind of pattern that would be useful. And that pattern could be around purchase behavior. It could be around specific audiences that are growing or not, that are emerging. That's kind of big space that probably traditionally didn't fall within the creative agency space because it actually falls more into the business and the business side of things. Then you can use data for strategic purposes in, in the creative agency space. So that would be finding out more about a specific audience, developing personas, really understanding the kind of touch points or channels that they are connecting with, how they are using those channels, all those kind of things. Then you can use data to inspire creative you can look at what's worked in the past or what didn't work. Is there anything else? Are there any trends that we could make use of? That in itself is also a really big space. And then you can go into using data to optimize campaigns. You can use data to measure campaigns. You can use data to calculate ROI. You can do all these things in silo, or you can use all of them across the board, across all clients, which is probably where you would like to get to ultimately but you need like an amazing relationship with your client. You need to have everyone on board internally as well as with the client. So that just within that creative agency space, there are already so many different ways to be using data. And they all mean using different tools, different kind of people. Some don't require data scientists. Others do because you might be working with really large data sets that you need some help with. They require different teams set up, different durations. Some of those projects are relatively small, others are really long. And there are all these opportunities just within the creative agency space that I found, and there are probably more that you can all work on if you are excited about this. 
That's outstanding. And the data can provide you so much visibility about what people in the market are doing and how they're interacting with different brands. And what is the role, I guess, outside of data? Is there still a role for non-database creativity to say Mm. this is something that we should be exploring or following the hunch? Or is it still a, Mm. a hybrid? Is there a space outside of data still? I guess the answer would depend on on who you ask. I think the answer is probably yes, because sometimes an instinct or a hunch can be a really good thing. I think you will probably still want to validate that with data to see if it's a substantially accurate hunch. If you are able to substantiate that, then I think that's great. A lot of times, I think what we can say, though, is that data is not or is sometimes abused a little bit because we all know that you can tell any story that you want. You can also tell the wrong story using data. You know, it depends on how you look at it. A lot of times, and maybe a couple of years ago, more so than now, I hope, and I would like to think that this will change or hopefully go away over time, where data is used to back up someone's hunch. But it's not an option to say that it's not right, for example. So I think it should at least go hand in hand. But the process yeah, can be quite, you can enter via the left side of the brain or the right side, as long, I think, as they're working together. I think that's all that matters. That's right. And what are the main types of uh, challenges that your clients ask you to help them with? Well, they're so different. Maybe that's also because I've worked in quite a broad space. So I'm quite happy to also try different things and completely new things. So our focus is still on, I still love the digital analytics, anything in the digital space, and then to complement that with other data sets. I love the mixing up of data sources because I find that when you start to mix up data sources, you will see different pieces of the puzzle coming together. And only when you see the different pieces together, you can see the full picture. Whereas if you would only look at one portion, it becomes a completely different, completely different sort of um, outcome. A lot of times what we do, so we do anything from using online listening in combination with any kind of digital analytics to try and establish what consumers are excited about versus what brands are excited about and how you can better optimize your content strategy as a result of that. It can be around trying to find out if there are specific audiences for a brand that we need to unpack and paint a picture of. It can be to validate a segmentation study using other data sources. So we are more and more also combining quantitative traditional research methodologies and mixing it up with digital and other data sets to figure out if what we found in the traditional methodology is what we can confirm using different data sources or that we find out that actually it turns out to be slightly different and we need to modify it. So we find just different layers that we feel can be added. It can be about coming up with a a creative campaign to launch a new product, but really understanding what people need and want, what they love, what they don't like, anything in that kind of space. Even helping a really big financial institution in terms of 
finding out more about their specific audience where we are using a web, web scraping in a really advanced level. And we are at the moment challenging ourselves to come up with a new way of doing it that will give us insights that we've actually never had before because we can see that some of the digital data sources are slowly being shut down because companies are abusing those insights, which means that we need to evolve and be more creative. So at the moment, we are figuring out where we can find data, publicly available data, uh, that would be that we would be able to use instead of using Facebook data, for example. So um, it's very, very dynamic. The thing is that I've spoken to you last year about what I thought I was going to be doing this year. I probably would have told you something completely different because yeah, that's what's happening at the moment. Things are changing. It's amazing how quickly, <laughs> for example, like I remember until a couple of years ago, we were scraping a lot of data from LinkedIn uh, using the API, and then the API was yeah. shut down. Now it's obviously completely different. So in your agency, do you guys keep data in a repository that then can be reused for different types of analysis and different clients? Do you build, I guess, a data capability in that way? Or do you work with clients on a case-by-case basis or something different? At the moment, on a case-by-case basis. But um, there is this one project, and I'll be able to tell you in a couple of months' time whether that was the biggest failure to date or the biggest success or a bit of both. Yes. But that has the potential to go quite big. But there is still a lot of work to be done by lots of different people. It's a really exciting project because we are working with many different disciplines. And at the moment, we are having to rewind again because all the different audiences need to understand exactly what it is that we are doing to feel comfortable with it. And then we can move forward again. We're not holding a database in any kind of way, but our clients do. That's fantastic. So I would like to change tact and ask you a few questions that I guess are more high level. The first one is, what do you think makes a great data scientist? I think it's mostly being a very curious person. It's someone who is really interested. I always say it's actually, I find that I am someone who's interested in understanding human behavior. And the, probably the same thing would apply to a data scientist. What I like about a data scientist is that a lot of times people think that you have to be a mathematician or that you have to be a very specific type of person. But the reality is that you need a specific type of brain. And obviously, you need to be a person who loves to be working with data. But it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't be a scientist who has never worked with numbers, but a scientist, someone who's always worked in the field of biology, or you can actually also be a marketing person or a developer, or you can be many different kind of... uh, So it's not so much, I think, about what you do or what you've studied, although certain things will help and make it easier. It's more about the way of thinking and being really curious and wanting to know things and wanting to find out things. And the great thing also about the data science is the working with other people. So it's also the community of like-minded people who will help you, who've got a brain, their brains might be wired slightly differently. And because that's the case, and I think, and that's appreciated that the brain works slightly differently you will be able to then solve it together. Whereas if it was just you by yourself and the community of data scientists 
is so big, it's such a global, amazing space that you will need to be the kind of person that likes connecting with other people and solving problems. I love the, the global view that you have. Like, mm. it's, it's so true. And tell me, what do you think makes a great data leader or a leader in the data space? What makes a really great one? Yeah, I think it's also pu pushing the boundaries, not necessarily always doing or thinking the way everyone else is thinking. It's being able to communicate with people. Actually, quite similar things to a data scientist. I think a data leader is and hopefully something you will become over time. It means that you need to be able to get people on your side and you will need to convince people. You need to be able to have tough decisions, have an opinion. You don't have to be incredibly extrovert, but a little bit would help. I think those are probably the key elements. That's very, very true. What do you think are the current challenges in the data space? Well, from my perspective, it's now the topic is about ethical use of data. I find that, and I was actually thinking this week that maybe I need to figure out something around that topic in terms of communicating, because I can hear that over and over and over again. And there's some interesting discussions between tech providers that offer access to data and then companies that use data. So the responsibility lies with both. At the moment, it feels that everyone is pointing fingers at, at each other. So at the moment, it's Facebook who are pointing fingers to Crimson Hexagon, who are pointing fingers to their clients and everyone's pointing fingers at each other. But the reality is that the tech provider has given access to the data. The company that has built a specific tool is giving functionality to clients that will allow them to use it in a certain way. And then as obviously on the client side, you know, people, how you use data is another. The responsibility lies across the board and you can't just say that because someone has not used it correctly, it's therefore their fault, not yours. I find that a really interesting debate. 100% agree. Yes, it's really, really interesting. But I think actually I'll ask you the question. And what, what do you think are some of the future challenges that will come sure. in the data space? I've got a feeling that we're going to see some changes as a result of all these discussions. I'm interested to see what's going to happen next. I also do think, that now that I think of it, that the responsibility also goes even beyond that because the responsibility also lies then with the data scientist, actually, who is mining that data and yes. all the people that are working with it. And I think that's still a story that's it's only starting to unfold now. And it might mean that in a couple of years' time, we have a lot less access to data than we have now. I wouldn't be surprised if more and more is going to get shut down, but then something else is going to come up. I don't know what that is. I'm hoping that in the future, there will be a lot more attention to using data for projects that are beneficial to the wider public to people that need it to be doing good. And we haven't really seen a whole lot of examples in that kind of space. And I think because there are lots of consumers who are asking questions around how products are being made, how that it feels that there is a whole change towards a more fair, eco-friendly, all those kind of things. And I think it would be really interesting to see the projects in the data space that are emerging to support that new feeling of people towards that. 
Yes, that's fantastic. I would love to see more projects around that too. That's really, really good. And actually, first, I'll ask you for a couple of resources that you would recommend for people to either improve on the data space or get more into the digital analytics space. Mm. Are there a couple of resources that you would recommend for people to check? I also thought about that. And to be completely honest, I find it very overwhelming at the moment. I'm finding it hard to figure out the one place or a few places to go to. And I've thought about if I have one place that I would recommend, and I actually wouldn't know what that one place is other than anything in the digital space. I mean, Google are amazing. They have lovely newsletters. You can figure out which area you're interested in. There are case studies. There are seminars. I'm a big fan of Google in that sense. I do also love Coursera for any kind of courses online. It's always been my favorite. I actually don't really know why, but it's always felt a really good place to go to. So those are two of my favorite areas. And I am also still links in. I find that if you are connected to the right people, you do also read interesting articles. Although I do spend less and less time on LinkedIn, it now being the new professional Facebook almost. Yes. <laughs> so maybe it's time for something new there. Hint to someone <laughs> out there. And then there are locally, there are some interesting, uh, there's a newsletter that I like in the tech space, but it's more of an opinion articles, but I find that really interesting. It's called Tech Central. It's the only newsletter that I read on a regular basis, but not interesting to anyone outside of South Africa. And I do also still like to read books, like a physical book every now and then. But there, I must also say that I haven't read anything hugely interesting. The last book that I read, and that's also been a few years that I do remember, is a book, and it's a lovely book to be reading from any, I think for anyone who's starting out in this space. It's called Sexy Little Numbers, and it's a book written also by a guy who used to be at Ogilvy, and I also worked with him, and he's amazing. He's not there anymore. He wrote a book about how to use the data that you already have. And it's also, it was one of the books that I read early on in my starting career in data space. It made me realize that sometimes you can just start using the data that you have. And there is always, whilst everyone always seems to think that they don't have data because they don't have a database, if you just start with looking at the digital data, probably in combination with sales data, there's so much information to be mined. And you can do really interesting things with that. And that book is a really lovely read. It's not complicated. It's very practical. It's actually a book that could probably interesting to anyone in a data space, whether you're a data scientist or someone who's more on the translating side of data or the business side of data. A really lovely book. That is so true. That is fantastic. I only have one last question for you and is a takeaway for the listeners, something for them to think about after listening to the podcast or something to ponder. What would you like to say to data scientists and data professionals out there? 
I would like to say that it's been an amazing space to be in for the past however many years I've been in it. It feels that it's only really starting now. I mean, I think that the possibilities are just endless for so many different kind of people. I have also in the past worked with people who were, for example, terrified of Excel and couldn't actually really look at numbers, had failed maths terribly and were incredibly successful in an analyst role interestingly yes because they were the kind of people who were able to look at all of that and to come up with conclusions and do a little bit of digging to try and find out why something was happening so i think that it's just about figuring out the data space is so broad is so incredibly broad and you can be quite a generalist or you can be a deep specialist but there is a role for many different people. It's just about trying things, not being intimidated by other people, to find your own path, to fail many times, to hang in there. And at some point in your career, you'll hopefully be at the same point as I, where you can say that you had to go through all these things to get to an amazing and very happy space. So I wish that to everyone who's listening. That is incredible. What an amazing note to end on. Thank you so much, Daniel. This has been so much fun. Thank you for sharing all your wisdom and your insights. It's been really, really great. Thank you for the opportunity. It was really lovely. And all the best to everyone. Thank you. Data Source Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Data Source is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news, listeners. University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning, and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.